The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. It sounded like the the hike that people went on with the Inn yesterday was really fun. Um, and I, I didn't go hiking yesterday. I'm old and decrepit. I don't know if I would have been able to do it. In my younger days, I might have been able to go hiking, but I didn't. Um, yesterday, for those of you who don't know me, I guess I should introduce myself. I'm Janie, one of the people on staff here. And um, if you've been here this quarter, you know that we've been going through a series um, that's looking at the Old Testament called How Our Story Fits God's Story, I think. Did I just make that? Is that the name of the series? Do we? Uh, there we go. Yeah, how God's story is our story. I flipped it. But the opposite is true, how our story is God's story. Um, and we've been looking at the Old Testament. Ryan and I have tried to point out how the themes of the Old Testament are actually present in all of Scripture. They are themes that show us who God is, that we have a God of promise, we have a God of deliverance, we have a God of provision, we have a God of covenant, we have a God of kingdom. God's kingdom is here in the world. Um, and what all these themes demonstrate, what all of these themes show us, is that we have a God who wants to be in real relationship with his people. God wants to be in relationship with each of us. So I'm going to do a quick and dirty run through what we've been through so far um, in the chronology of the Old Testament. I think we have a timeline we can go through. So we start with Abraham. His descendants became the nation of Israel. Israel is enslaved by the Egyptians. They are delivered from slavery. They move into the promised land and eventually become the nation of Israel. See, I told you it was going to be fast. Um, It was a bit of a bumpy road, but eventually Israel becomes a strong and mighty nation under King David. And they prospered for about 100 years. And from its beginning, from the beginning, God made a covenant with Israel. And the covenant was basically this. I will be your God. I will be with you. I want you to be with me. God poses this question throughout the Old Testament to his people Israel. He says, I am with you. Will you be with me? And throughout the Old Testament, the answer to that question is sometimes, yeah, God, we're with you. We're on board. But most of the time, the answer to that question is, no, thanks, God. We're good. We got it covered. And it was less a, no, God, we reject you. We hate you. And more just a complete ignoring God altogether. God's desire was for real relationship, to engage his people, Israel. And the most common response that they gave was, meh. What we see throughout the Old Testament is indifference, apathy. They were creating gods of their own design. They were kind of just doing their own thing. They forgot all about God, which in some ways is the worst kind of rejection, isn't it? I would rather have someone outright hate me. Janie, I hate you. I despise you. You wear too many cardigans, which is true. I do. Or whatever reason that someone would hate me. That would be so much better than if someone was so indifferent to me that they didn't even remember that I existed. Didn't even give me a second thought. Essentially, that's what Israel's rejection of God looked like. They just forgot now back to our timeline, as I mentioned, Israel experienced a century of peace and prosperity under King David, and also a little bit under his son, King Solomon, but then things started to kind of fall apart under King Solomon and his, 
his um, successor, and then we have, at the end here, we have a divided kingdom. There was a bunch of infighting about how much wealth the king was amassing, and there was a, you know, they were saying, like, you're taxing them more than you're taxing us. It's kind of the checklist that you could go through of the classic downfall of a kingdom in history. That's what happened in Israel. And it set them on this trajectory that they would really never recover from. What happens is there's a civil war, and the country's divided into two, and I think we have... Um, a map, actually. I have a map of the country divided into two. Israel is a northern kingdom, and then Judah is a southern kingdom, which is really just south Israel. It can be really confusing when you're reading scripture, because you're like, who is Judah? Where did they come from? All the people in this area are Israelites. That's all. That's who everybody is. Is Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, they're all Israelites. They're all God's people. And... Um, for the most part, neither of these nations ever really thought about this covenant that they had with God. They all kind of forgot about it. Now, they were down with the fact they were God's people. I mean, they loved the fact that they thought nothing can happen to us. We are golden. We're protected. We're God's people. But as far as the part where they were with God, living into what it looked like to acknowledge that they're God's people, living their lives in a different way, across the board, they pretty much sucked it up. That's really a lot of what the Old Testament talks about. As you can imagine, God got upset, got angry, was frustrated. God was, was sad, was jealous. Every emotion you can think of God experienced in this relationship God had with Israel. And this led to the rise of the prophets in the Old Testament. Okay, that's what I'm building to. That's, this comes to the rise of the prophets. It's a lot of scripture. I don't know if you guys know this, but it's a big chunk, the prophets. It's like this much. It's a bunch of scripture all of these, like 17 books of the Bible. Um, and I know we don't really venture there because we think of it as the realm of like hipster baby names. I think we have a list of all of the Jeremiah, Haggai, Nahum, Micah, Zechariah, Zephaniah. There are a lot of prophets. There's 17 of them. Um, and we don't go there very often. You guys are like, oh my gosh, I know a kid named Nahum. It's crazy. Um, you can you can take those off, Stephen. But my point is that we don't open those books of the Bible very often. And the reason is mostly because they're really confusing. They're really confusing. Mostly there's five peop- there's five players. There is God, there's the person who is the prophet, that would be like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. And then you have Israel, then you have Judah, South Israel. And then you also have these other nations. So so there's five people involved in this. And when you read the prophets, you're like, who's talking? And who are they talking to? What's going on? They're incredibly confusing. Now, while they are really difficult, I want to talk about why they're great. It's valuable to become familiar because you learn so much about this tumultuous relationship that God had with this people Israel that he wanted a relationship with. And the actual prophets, they weren't future tellers. They were truth tellers. They're God's mouthpiece to apathetic, indifferent people, trying to wake them up. Stop cheating on God. Demonstrate that you care at all about this relationship. Not only that, wake up to the fact that there are these huge nations that are rising up all around you, but you have such a prideful ego, you think that you don't need to be concerned about them at all. Essentially, the Israelites had zero investment in their relationship with God, and they were delusional. They were living in a fake world, like a a different reality where like, what are you doing? What are you doing? 
I don't know if you guys have ever interacted with somebody who is normally you have a good relationship with, who usually lives in reality, but then all of a sudden moves to this place of delusion, and you're like, what is happening? A few years ago, a friend and I were backpacking in Yosemite, and um, we hiked Half Dome, which is not the easiest thing. It's like 16 miles round trip. And uh, I think I, I actually have a couple pictures, Steve, and you can put... That's me on the left. You can see I'm reading the map. I don't know if you guys have seen a map before. It, like, folds up, and then you can <laughs> fold it back up again to go somewhere. Um, that's, like, halfway. It's, like, four miles. Uh, it's a Liberty Cap in the background. So we hike up to the top. That was actually at sunrise, too. We left at, like, 4 a.m. so that we would get there at noon so it wouldn't be too hot. Totally thinking ahead, right? We had everything planned out. So we get to the top, and once you get to the top, it kind of clears out, and it's just granite all around. You can see the views of Yosemite Valley. It's really awesome. But you also have to go up these cables, which are a little bit treacherous, and it can be a little bit scary. So my friend Jody and I start up these cables, and she begins to have a little bit of a panic attack. So she stops, and she's like, I'm just not going to go. I'm going I'm to sit down. You go up and come back down. So I went up, took some pictures, came back down. I was like, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. She was like, okay, um, I think what would be best is if you can walk down to our car and then get in my pack and then you'll find my wallet and in my wallet you can get a credit card and you can go to the ranger station and then get a helicopter to come up here and pick me up and take me back down to the valley floor. And I was like, oh yeah, good one. Huh, right, let's go get some cheeseburgers. I'm really hungry. Um, she looks at me just like dead serious. No get a helicopter to get me down. That is the only way I'm getting off this mountain. And so I'm like realizing she's serious. So I start reasoning with her, trying to be rationalizing, start encouraging her. Let's do it, girl power. We can do this. Come on. For like half an hour. And I realize that she's just delusional that this is going to happen. And she's totally fine physically, but she's convinced a helicopter is going to come pick her up. So we reach a point where I, and I don't get upset very often, I don't yell very often, I'm like this far from her face, and here's how I solve the problem. I'm like this far from her face, and I go, get up, now, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go! We were screaming, screaming at her. And she snapped out of it. She got up, and, and we walked down a mountain. And I always think of that when I think about people that are just in this delusional place. You have to just... Yell at them. You have to just go with them in order to try to get them to snap out of it. And that's desperately what the prophets are trying to do with Israel. They're trying to wake them up. Where, where are you? What, what world are you living in that you are so far removed that you think, even though you have no relationship with God, that you don't need to do anything and you're totally fine and protected? The prophets have this range of emotions from God. They have seething anger. They have moving compassion. They have God overwhelmed by jealousy. They have God pouring out love. I have a few examples from different, um, if you want to throw those up there, Stephen, from um, Hosea. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. See God's anger. And Amos, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. God's at the end of his rope. And then in Joel, um, 
And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. You have God's outpouring of love. Whenever I read the prophets, I always walk away with the same impression that God is desperate to be in a real relationship with his people. Just relentless pursuit. The fact that that much of scripture, that big of a chunk, is taken up by God trying to get Israel back in relationship demonstrates that God is desperate. And a lot of what we read is about a lack of obedience from Israel. But it's not because God wanted perfect obedience. The thing is that it demonstrated, the lack of obedience demonstrated what was true. That their hearts were so far away from God. In fact, there's several times where the Israelites say, God, we offered sacrifices to you. We did all the things that we're supposed to do. And God says in response, the smell of your sacrifices is disgusting because You don't even care. You're just going through the motions. God wanted real relationship. Now, despite all these words, neither nation really did anything to respond. In 722 BCE, the northern kingdom of Israel is wiped out by the bigger, faster, stronger Assyrian empire. Like, it ceases to exist. And Judah, the southern kingdom, continued on for about 100 more years, and you would think what happened to the northern kingdom would wake them up to the fact, we should pay attention to what's going on here. But actually, it made them think, wow, we must truly be God's people. These guys up north, they were posers, right? God loves us more. But in 587 BCE, the Babylonian Empire invades and destroys Jerusalem. I'm going to read about what happens in 2 Kings um, And Jerusalem's the capital of Judah. This is the historical account. On the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian empire under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king, to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. So this event is referred to in scripture as the exile. Many in Judah, the best and the brightest, are taken captive, and they are forced to walk over 500 miles. I think we um, have a map of the route that they walked, over 500 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. They've lost everything. And then people are left behind to work the land in Babylon, or excuse me, in Judah, essentially as slaves. Not only have they lost the land that God promised them, They lost their king, and probably worst of all, the temple, the place where God was supposed to dwell, is burned down. God's supposed to dwell in their midst, in in their midst, in the temple. How are they supposed to know God's presence now? Their identity, they're God's people, that's the only way they know themselves, is gone. The Exodus, when they're delivered from slavery in Egypt, that is one of the most important moments of their history, and the exile 
is one of the most important moments in their history. Because in the Exodus, they're like, praising God. Yes, God saved us. And in the exile, they're asking, has our God abandoned us? Is God gone? One biblical scholar says that Good Friday, the day that Jesus died in the New Testament, is what the exile is like in the Old Testament. The day where it seemed like God left the earth. Everything is lost, and a lot of scripture is written to come to terms with this. There's lament, there's crying out in pain, there's asking, how could this happen? Why could this happen? God, where are you? This failure seemed like the end of God's existence in the, for the Israelites. This seemed like the final failure. Now, I know that when we talk about this in our context, we have no idea what it's like to lose our homeland, to have everything burned and destroyed. We can't relate to those things about being in exile, but I know we can relate to the total devastation of failure. I know where you are in your life right now as a student in school, failure is probably what you think about more than anything else. It determines what we do. It determines how we view ourselves. Our biggest fears in life are connected to failing. It's just not okay in our culture to fail. Maybe for you the failure is something like, man, I thought this relationship was going to go the distance. And it's already over. We didn't even make it to spring formal. I'm, I was totally rejected. I'm a total failure. Or maybe your failure is, I, I know I was called to be a nurse or doctor, and I got rejected from nursing school again. Or maybe your failure is in how you live your life. Man, I really thought I had a handle on that behavior, that sin. But I did it again. And then I lied about it. Again. Failure can be overwhelmingly devastating. I feel like it dominates our thinking more than anything else. And it seems like it's the end. Another reason you should become familiar with the prophets They didn't only talk about judgment, they also offered hope for a future, even out of failure. Jeremiah 29 is one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture, because in the midst of failure, there's hope. And this is a letter written from God to the people that are in exile. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what I... Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God's giving them hope to live their lives And to care for the Babylonians. And then if we jump to verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you, declares the Lord. 
and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. To a people who thought God has abandoned us, you have God's words, if you seek me, you will find me. I will be found by you. What you've experienced may feel like total failure, but I am still at work. Be present where you are. Seek the good of those around you. I'm going to transform you. Because with God, failure isn't fatal. It's directional. And this is a redirection of hope. The Old Testament is a book full of failure. I mean, it's failure upon failure with redirections. And because of that, it's a book full of hope. We always think there's no hope in the Old Testament except for the fact that Jesus is coming. That's not true. God's hope is all over the Old Testament. Failure offered a new direction to Judah. It meant that God had the resilient power to work something new from a people who have been devastated. It meant that God's love will not quit. God's power and love is at work in us as well, in our failures, our brokenness, our hurt, our despair. Because with God, failure isn't fatal. It's directional. What look and feel like failures to us may simply be a redirection. We might have absolutely no idea what it's going to look like. But if we allow ourselves to hope something new will rise out of the ashes of our disappointments, out of our failures, out of our sin. The prophets remind Judah and us that God's ultimate intention is not failure and destruction. God's ultimate intention is to build and to plant, to give hope in a future. Another pastor here at UPC um, introduced me to the Japanese art of kintsugi. Sounds like martial arts, but I'm not going to do that. Kintsugi means golden joinery or golden seams in Japanese. And actually some examples of kintsugi. All of these pots, these dishes, were actually broken. And the artist uses gold to glue them back together. And then when these dishes are fired, the gold actually comes to the surface and changes the appearance of the jar so it becomes something entirely different with a whole new level of complexity and beauty that it never had before it was broken. When you look at that, where are your eyes drawn? To the golden seams, right? It becomes hard to see it as a record of failure and brokenness Something that would have been thrown away is recognized as a background for an amazing work of art. When the Babylonians came in and took them into exile, Judah was broken, crushed, destroyed. But they receive a word of hope from Jeremiah that God is still at work within them, working to put them back together, working to make them something beautiful. They're called to live as God's people where they are, to impact where they are. Make the lives of those around them better. And out of these people come the person, Jesus. That's the work of God in our lives. No matter what we do or how much we try to hide them, we have cracks. We're broken. Our hatred, our pride, our selfishness, our fear, anything that exposes a failure, we try to hide all of it. But we can't avoid them. And when the cracks come to the surface... We feel incredibly frail. We think, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to fall apart. 
But God is going to continue to reconcile us, to repair us to beauty and wonder that we couldn't even imagine before we acknowledged that we were broken. If you hear nothing else from what I've said tonight, if you don't hear anything else about God's work in your life, listen to this. God doesn't convict you. God doesn't cause you to fail in order to expose your brokenness, in order to destroy you. God convicts you. God allows you to fail because God wants to restore you. God wants to redirect you to hope that he has for you. God fills the broken places of our life, our failures, all the things we're ashamed of. And God makes something beautiful out of us, out of me, out of you. When Jeremiah sent that letter with God's words of hope, Judah's faith depended on their ability to believe it's true. God can bring beauty from failure. That it wasn't the end, but it was an opportunity to hope. Everything in our faith depends on our ability to believe it's true. It depends on our ability to believe that God can raise a man, Jesus, from the dead, from the most broken place to new life. It depends on our ability to believe that everything lost can be restored. Everything damaged can be repaired. Everything destroyed can be rebuilt and actually made into something more beautiful by God's work in us. God's word to the people in Judah, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. God, we are grateful that we are broken people. God, we are grateful that you are at work in the brokenness, in the failures. We are grateful that you redirected your people thousands of years ago to give us the person of Jesus. that can be a demonstration to us of what it can look like to be made whole, to have our failures made beautiful in ways we could never even imagine before we knew you. In your holy name, amen.